In Luke chapter 11, Jesus sends out 70 of his followers. Now, he only had 12 formal apostles or disciples, guys that he had intentionally called to follow him on a daily basis throughout his routine of life and teaching and healing and preaching ministry. But he had others besides the 12 that kept up with him, that were curious about him, and even their curiosity went beyond just this idea of, it'd be neat to see what Jesus does. They believed his teaching, they had witnessed miracles, and they wanted to be a part of Jesus' ministry. And so he sent them out to various villages to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, and yes, even to cast out demons, to deal with the spiritually oppressed. And when this group of people came back to Jesus to report back to him the things that they had seen, the things that they had heard, also the things that they, himself, they themselves had said and done, Jesus began to teach them how blessed they were as his followers. Because the Old Testament prophets... Even Moses and Elijah themselves had longed to see the day of the Messiah, the anointed one that God would send into the world to usher in his kingdom. But these disciples were actually the ones able to witness it with their own eyes and their own ears. And it's towards the tail end of this conversation that a person who was not a follower of Jesus stood up and began to intrude in this conversation. In Luke chapter 11, verse 25, or sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we find out what this person had to say to Jesus. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And a lawyer stood up to him and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we've got to understand something about this lawyer. Lawyers had the same type of reputation and regard in this day and time as they do in our day and time. That is, you never wanted to meet one, but if you needed one, you wanted a good one, right? And so this lawyer was skilled in his practice. But different from our day and time, he wasn't skilled in the law of the land. That is, he didn't go to court so much to defend someone who is guilty of a crime charged by the Roman authorities as he would stand before the Jewish council, the leadership there in Jerusalem and Galilee, the area of Judea where the Jews lived. He was skilled specifically in the knowledge and interpretation of the Old Testament law. Rabbis were known as great teachers of the law. Lawyers were there kind of as a counterbalance to these rabbis to prove whether or not these rabbis' teachings were true amongst their peers. The lawyers studied the Old Testament law just as much as the rabbis did, but instead of trying to guide people in the truth, they were there to make sure that the people guiding others into truth were actually teaching the truth. And this lawyer, probably having heard some of what Jesus had talked with, about, 
talked with to his disciples in uh, earlier in Luke chapter 11, begins to kind of squirm in his seat a little bit. Kind of with the idea that what authority does Jesus really have to be teaching these disciples? He's gathering a pretty good following after all. He's got 70 people that he sent out into these towns and villages. Maybe I need to check in on him. And in fact, maybe there was some disdain in this lawyer's mind and heart for Jesus. Because the more Jesus was elevated, the more the Jewish leaders, rabbis, lawyers, scribes, priests, and Levites seemed to be diminished. Because Jesus was teaching with authority that nobody else could teach with. He was performing miracles that no one had ever before witnessed. And so this lawyer, with impure motives, wanting to put Jesus to the test, asked him a question. This verb to test in the New Testament is never used in a positive light, by the way. Instead of trying to test or to prove that someone is right, it's always used in a negative sense that they're testing or proving someone wrong. In other words, this lawyer is wanting Jesus to look like a fool in front of his 70 faithful followers and all the others who were there around him as well. And so this was his question. A question that was asked not just of Jesus, but of many rabbis in this day and time. A question that wasn't just asked of rabbis in a formal setting, but a question that was discussed amongst the Jewish people in general. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, Jesus, you seem to know what you're talking about. Everyone else is listening to you. You know the Old Testament, so what do I have to do to be a part, not just of God's kingdom on this earth, but a part of His eternal kingdom? What must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus answered him in verse 26, not scared, not searching for an answer, but Jesus in the way that only Jesus could do answered his question with a question, a very profound question. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? In other words, Jesus is asking the lawyer at this point to do what he does best. Remember, he's skilled with knowledge of Old Testament law and an interpretation of Old Testament law. And Jesus says, you've asked the question. You want everybody to know who you are, so go ahead and show them. You know it, so share it. You can understand it. You can explain it, so go ahead and do so. And at first, the lawyer probably had this little smile out of the corner of his mouth. Like, Jesus, I got you right where I want you. You're eating out of my hand. And so the lawyer had the opportunity to not just respond to Jesus' question, but also to have everyone else listen to how brilliant and genius he was. After all, he was about to share with this group of people gathered around how one could have eternal life. 
And he answered, verse 27. This lawyer answered Jesus' question. By saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now look, you can talk bad about this lawyer all you want to, but that's a really good answer. I mean, it is after all. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, in the books of Matthew and Mark, we find people coming up to Jesus and asking him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds by saying virtually the same thing this lawyer said. Jesus and this lawyer both quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then they also quoted Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, this was not an uncommon answer to this type of question. Some scribes, some teachers of the day said that the greatest commandment was to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they stopped there. Some other rabbis and teachers taught that you were supposed to love your neighbor as you loved yourself. Some stated it like this, you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you, what we commonly refer to as the golden rule. Some would answer this question with the reverse golden rule, that is, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. This was not the first time Jesus had heard these words. In fact, if we want to get right down to it, Jesus as the divine, as God, could probably chuckle in his heart of hearts and say, yeah, I, I know that. I came up with that one. But this lawyer answered the question that Jesus asked him, and he answered it well. And you would think that this lawyer had one-upped Jesus in front of all of these other people kind of an interesting exchange, is it not? The lawyer wants to prove Jesus wrong, one-up Jesus, and Jesus gives him the opportunity to answer his own question, to expound upon his beliefs and his own rightness. The man answers. But then Jesus responded in verse 28 with this small little bit of wisdom. Jesus said to him in verse 28, You have answered correctly. And then Jesus said, Do this and you will live. And I can imagine that lawyer that had that little smirk on his face, all of a sudden his ears perked up, his face turned really red, and in his heart of hearts, he said, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, he was trying to make Jesus look like he wasn't Jesus. He was trying to make Jesus look like he didn't know what he was talking about. And now Jesus has made him look like a fool. Say, so how? How would Jesus have done that? 
Because Jesus knew that the man knew the answer to the question, but he knew that the man was not living the answer to the question. In fact, that's where the point of challenge comes from the Lord with people. You can know who God is as the creator of the heavens and the earth. In fact, you might even believe that there is only one God, one true God. You can know facts. You can know different things about the Bible even. But without acting upon God's word in faith, do you really know the one true God in a personal sense? In fact, in verse 29, we know that this lawyer was a little upset by Jesus' response because he's got to do something about this to save face. So wishing to justify himself, in verse 29, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now you realize what's happening in this conversation, don't you? Jesus has let the man answer his own question, but then Jesus kind of points his finger back in this guy's face and says, Good job. Now you need to go do it, or it's not going to make a difference. Jesus? Exactly. Who is my neighbor? And even by this man's question, we see some irony. After all, if he was skilled in Old Testament knowledge and interpretation, he should have known who his neighbor was, right? But he almost, and really does, give some weight or affirmation to Jesus' comment that he was supposed to obey these commands and then he would experience life. Because he's basically saying, well, Jesus, look, if i got to love my neighbor as myself, you need to tell me how to do that. And Jesus, without hesitation, begins to tell a story. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan in verse 30. Jesus replied to the man and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and then they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, Jesus was a master teacher. He could take things that people knew in common life and daily practice and apply deep spiritual truths to those basic lessons of daily life in Judea. In fact, traveling the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a common route, but it was also a route that was known for its danger. This way was called the Way of Adjumim. The journey had a reputation for being dangerous even long before Jesus' own time. The journey went from almost 2,000 feet above sea level to 825 feet below sea level. Along this journey, there's all kinds of cliffs, and in the cliffs and mountainous landscape, there's some caves and nooks and crannies. It was the perfect place for robbers, for thieves to hide and ambush unsuspecting travelers. It was about 17 miles in length, a day or so's walk, and it was a rocky thoroughfare throughout the desert, surrounded by caves, made good hiding places for robbers who laid in wait, 
And even centuries after Christ's time, robbers continued to exploit travelers on this path. So it's a common scenario. Jesus was familiar with it. Everybody who was around, including this lawyer, were familiar with this type of story, this type of situation. And then Jesus provides some more details. Verse 31, by chance, or just coincidence, a priest was going down that same road. And when he saw him, that is the man who had been stripped of his clothes and beaten and left for dead, he passed by on the other side. A priest. Now this was a person who was a little different from the lawyer, not in the sense that he didn't know the Old Testament, but in the way he carried upon the daily duties of Old Testament law. A priest would have served in the temple there in Jerusalem, helping to offer sacrifices for the people, helping to carry on the worship of the one true God. We're not told the details of this man's journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, only that he's going down the same road, but when he sees this man who has been beaten up and left for dead, instead of bowing down to help him and provide him aid, he kind of gives him the stink eye and walks right on past. After all, who knew if the robbers were still nearby? Who knew if that man was a part of a ploy to exploit this priest walking down the road? And so in your mind's eye, you can kind of see him hurriedly speed past this fellow on the side of the road, not give him another thought. And then Jesus says, another man happened to come by. Verse 32, likewise, or in the same way, a Levite also. When he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a Levite was not a descendant of Aaron, but he was a descendant of Levi. That is, the, the priests were all descendants of Aaron's family within the tribe of Levi. A Levite was still a religious Jew. He had responsibilities to assist the priests in the temple as they carried on the worship of the Lord there. But this Levite, upon seeing him, Jesus says he doesn't just immediately pass by on the other side of the road, but rather kind of stoops over to take a notice. Maybe he even nudged him with his foot a little bit to make sure he was still breathing and moving. And who knows what he was thinking. Maybe it was a, eh, if I pick him up and carry him to Jericho, he's probably going to die anyways. Let's just go on. We don't really know. All we know is that he passed by. Didn't care for the man. Didn't help him. Didn't provide him aid. And then in verse 33, really the way this story is unfolding, you would expect Jesus to talk about another super religious Jew who happened by that road and then chose to help this man to love his neighbor as himself, right? I mean, after all, we're kind of moving down the ladder here. You've got the priests who served in the temple to provide continual worship to the Lord, a Levite's underneath them. And then if you're familiar with the Jewish structures and religious society, what would have happened next on that rung would have been a lawyer happened to come by the road. That is somebody skilled with Old Testament knowledge and an Old Testament interpretation. 
and perhaps even this lawyer, is ready to hear his own title call as one who would walk by this road, see the hurt man, and help the hurt man. But Jesus decides to share the story this way. But a Samaritan. That's a big deal. Why? Because unlike the priests and the Levites and the lawyers, the Samaritans weren't really super religious people in the sense that they desired to keep the Old Testament law. In fact, they syncretized religion. And what's more than that, these Samaritans were a different race. They weren't considered Jewish people. They weren't considered part of God's chosen people. In fact, these Samaritans were hated and despised by lawyers, priests, and Levites. But Jesus says this about this Samaritan. He was on a journey, and when he came upon this hurt man, when he saw him, he felt compassion. That is, his heart wasn't hardened but softened. He pitied the man who was hurt and left for dead on the side of the road. And Jesus uses more words to describe the Samaritan's actions towards the hurt man than he ever used to describe the Levite or the priest before him. In fact, the Samaritan in verse 34 came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, probably traveling on a donkey or mule. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan had planned for his journey. He'd set out with provisions to take care of himself. Oil and wine and extra clothing and perhaps even bandages, strips of cloth, were common items to pack for yourself as you were traveling down the road. This man decided to use the things he had brought for himself to help a man that he didn't know who was in desperate need. He bandaged up his wounds. that kind of interesting? I mean, this day and time, especially, you think about that. First sign of a cut. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not touching that. This man's left half dead. Breathing. Barely. Moaning in pain. Cuts, bruises all over his body. This man wraps up everyone, bandaged his wounds. Then it says he took his own oil and own wine, precious possessions in this day and time. It's not like they kept any of foreign band-aids with them. He would have used the oil to soothe the wounds and the wine to provide some disinfectant. He then put him on his own animal which implies that he got off of his animal and chose to walk the rest of the way so that this man could ride in more comfort. Then he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. Inns were places where travelers would stay. There are in fact two different words used for inn in the New Testament time period. And this is the nicer of the two, right? 
be kind of like the difference between staying at a Motel 8 and a Hampton Inn. A little bit nicer of a place. These types of inns were known for their hospitality, where their managers would take care of the tenants for more than just a day at a time. And on the next day, the Samaritan decides that he's going to do something even better for the man. He didn't just stay all night with them to ensure that he was okay throughout the night. But the next day he took out two denarii, that is two days wages. So just think about your paycheck and divide it out into how much money you get paid per day. And he gave him two days worth of his own money. He handed this this money over to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. In other words, see to his needs. Give him what he requires. And then he goes on to say this, And whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll repay you whatever he owes. You mean two days wages wasn't enough? Whatever he needed, the Samaritan would take care of. Just put it on his tab. He'll pay it back when he comes back through. And then after the story is complete, Jesus looks the lawyer in the eye and asks him this question. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? You know what I think the lawyer thought in that moment? I wish I never would have stood up and asked Jesus that question. But the lawyer had to answer. I mean, if he'd have hung his head and walked away, he'd have really looked like a fool. But Jesus pierced to the heart of the matter for this man. In fact, when the man responded to Jesus in verse 37, he can't even bring himself to say it was the Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. You see, this lawyer had all of the knowledge of God's word that he could possibly have at this point in time. He had studied it. He knew the great command. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, I would even dare say he probably knew what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. He simply wasn't doing it. And the truth of the matter is this. If we were to talk with Jesus today, asking him, about the greatest commandment or how to inherit eternal life, I don't think he would tell us something we don't already know. I think he would give us an answer that we've heard time and time again. But when we heard the answer, we would know, I'm not doing that. In fact, here was this lawyer's problem. It's the same problem that many of us have and we don't want to admit. The lawyer in verse 29 asked Jesus who my neighbor is. 
in order to justify himself. And this is really the problem, isn't it? We want to justify ourselves, our attitudes and our actions, our thoughts and our behaviors. And that justification for the way that we want to live our lives often comes at the expense of those around us. In order to love our neighbors as ourselves, really we've got to get ourselves out of the way, don't we? I mean, who knows what excuses we make in our day and time, but many times we do. But God, I know that they need a ride, but Lord, I can't take them today. I got a place to be, people to see. God, I, I know that they need some help. And yeah, I could hand them some money out of my wallet, but Lord, you know that they got vacation coming up. I don't want to take my own money and give it to them. God, I know that they could use some encouragement, but do I really have to go and put myself through listening to their sob story for an hour just to pat them on the back? Do I really have to expend that emotional energy? God, I know that, that they're in need, but Lord, I got some things I want to do. Maybe we're too busy. Maybe we, we don't want to take the time. Maybe we think somebody else will help them. Maybe we think they've got what they need. You know, that's just more of a want. We try to justify ourselves in many ways. But when we get ourselves out of the way, then we're able to see people as God sees them. In fact, here's the deal with loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. When we choose not to love our neighbors, we're really saying that we're more important than they are. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Who made you? Go ahead and respond. God. Who made the other people around you? Who died on the cross for your sins? Who died on the cross for the sins of people around you? Do you think that you're more important than the other people around you? God made them just like he made you. Christ died for them just like he died for you. So what is the issue? The issue is we like to think of ourselves more than we like to think of other people. And this is at the heart of love your neighbor as you love yourself. We think of ourselves all the time. We want to do what's best for us. We want to take care and look out for number one. But what if number one wasn't you? What if number one was your father in heaven? What if you chose to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You wanted to do everything to please and to honor Him instead of to please yourself. And what if in conjunction with number one, there was a very close number two, and that number two still wasn't you? It was the other people around you. In fact, instead of trying to do everything to make yourself feel better, you did everything for the betterment of others around you. Be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? 
your life would not look the same. In fact, it's those small acts of genuine care and compassion towards others that often demonstrate the greatness and the goodness of God's love. I ran into a man in town this week, and he said, Preacher, come here. i got to tell you something. He said, I've been looking for you the last couple weeks. i got to tell you this story. I said, okay. He said, my mom goes to church up there. I said, yeah, I know. He said, you remember that morning that you guys still decided to have church? I said, yeah, we're the only people in town, I think, decided to have church that morning. But it iced. He said, my mom came to church, and she was going to go to her Sunday school class. She wasn't going to be able to get out of her car because there's still ice, slush in the parking lot. He said, there's a young man in, in that church that went out, got my mom, and brought her into her Sunday school classroom. And then, not only that, but after church was over with, he went back and found her and made sure that she made it back to her car. Oh, man, that's it, isn't it? Loving your neighbor as you love yourself putting someone else's needs above your own selfish desires? When, when you encounter someone who is in need and you have the ability to meet that need, you have the choice to love them or to not love them. What will you choose to do? you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? In just a moment, you're going to hear a song of invitation played. As this song is played, you have the opportunity to respond to God as He's spoken to your heart this morning. Maybe you're here today and you don't love your neighbor as yourself because... You don't love the Lord. You don't want to obey His commands. Can I share with you, very briefly, that the real answer to this man's question about how to have eternal life wasn't found from any good thing that he could do. It was found in what God could do and would do for him. In order to love God and in order to love other people, we first have to know and experience God's love for us. And when you know how much God loves you, that He loves you enough to send His only Son to die on the cross for your sins, then you want to love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you want to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Maybe it's time that you didn't just have a heart adjustment, but that you had a complete and total heart replacement. Maybe it's time for you this morning to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, to come to know that God does love you, that He sent His only Son to die for your sins, that His Son rose again and promises life to all who repent of their sins and believe in His name. Maybe you're here this morning, you've been following Christ for a long time, but you haven't loved your neighbor as you love yourself. Or maybe there's a particular person on your heart and mind right now that you need to show God's love too. Maybe you need to pray for them now and then go respond as you leave this building and show them love as God wants you to do. I'll be standing down here in the front if any of you need to come and speak with me.
If you need to pray with me, I'd be happy to pray with you. Maybe you need to come and kneel at this altar and pray to the Lord. As God calls you this morning, would you come?